This is episode 26 of Cinescope. And so long, partner. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Gene Goswer to talk about one of our favorite films, Toy Story 3. Gene, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well, Chad. How are you? I am doing great, and I'm excited to have you on the show. It's another real-world theology person <laughs> to, to yeah. visit the show. Have you rounded out the whole cast yet? Have we all been on? Uh, not quite. I've had Mikey, of course, and Blake, and uh, Blaine, and now you. So Awesome. Yeah. So how about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm Gene. Um, I do a lot of the editing and writing on realworldtheology.com, and I also take part in a Christian apologetics blog called A Clear Lens, and it's uh, clearlens.org is the website. So that's a, a blog with a lot of articles, and then I'm on the podcast. That's pr- one of my primary roles over there. So I'm doing a lot of movie stuff with Real World and the Christian Apologetics with Clear Lens. Great. Well, I'm like I said, I'm glad to have another Real World Theology person on the show. I've known Mikey for a long time, and I've actually met him. He's one of the few podcaster friends I know who I've actually met. And, uh, yeah, it's special. He just randomly showed up in my city one day, middle of the suburbs outside of Dallas. So <laughs> well, now that's a little creepy. <laughs> it is just a little bit, but, uh, I think, uh, J.R. Foresteros lives there. So it was there just a go. weird coincidence, but anyways, I'm glad to have you add you to the show and talk about one of the best Pixar movies for sure. Definitely. Uh, but before we do that, just a quick reminder to the listeners, please go to iTunes, take a couple minutes out of your day, rate, review, hit the subscribe button. It's a big help to the show and help us to expand our audience and to just continue to grow. And uh, real quick, just at the start of the show, I won't go into details, but just a quick social media reminder, if you don't make it to the end of the show all the time, outside of iTunes and, of course, the website, the podcast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we're also on YouTube and Tumblr if you're interested in helping to promote the show on those platforms as well. So check us out, all those places. I'll make sure there's links to all of them in the show notes, and we'll review that one more time before the before we sign off tonight. So with that, are you ready to talk about Toy Story 3, Gene? Let's dive right in. Awesome. Well, this movie was released on June 18th of 2010 and was directed by Lee Unkrich, who also co-directed Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., and Finding Nemo, and he's set to direct the upcoming Pixar film Coco about uh, the Day of the Dead, I believe. This script was written by Michael Arndt, who also did work on Star Wars The Force Awakens. And the music was by Randy Newman, who composed the scores and songs, in some cases, for The Natural, Toy Story, James and the Giant Peach, A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., Seabiscuit, Cars, The Princess and the Frog, Toy Story 3, and Monsters University. The movie stars Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, Joan Cusack, Blake Clark, Wallace Shawn, John Ratzenberger, Estelle Harris, Michael Keaton, Jody Benson, Ned Beatty, Emily Hahn as Bonnie, and John Morris as Andy. And uh, most of these characters, at least uh, the familiar faces, have been voicing the characters the whole time, with the, the notable exception being Blake Clark, who voiced Slinky Dog in this movie, replacing Jim Varney after his untimely death back in 2000. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but even Andy, John Morris, was is the same voice actor for all three Toy Story films, which is a really cool, fun fact, considering it's been 18 years and that character in particular has changed so much. Yeah, definitely. That certainly speaks to his range, too, because we have Andy going from a young boy to a fully adolescent teenager. So, yeah, that's that's good on you, John. Definitely. Um, so, Gene, let's start this off. What was your first experience with Toy Story 3 in particular, but maybe the whole trilogy as a whole as well? Well, uh, with Toy Story 3, I had to ask my wife about this. I, I always hate these questions. When, do you, when did you first see? Because I have a, the worst memory. So she <laughs> says that uh, this was the first movie that we took my son to. And so that's bad enough that I can't remember that. Uh, we would we He would have been two at the time. So I have a, he is now eight years old. Uh, he'll be nine really soon, but also have a six-year-old and three-year-old daughters. So very shortly after our first daughter was born, we took my son Dylan out to the movies, kind of a time to say, you know, we, you're, you're not being forgotten about, right? Right. And so we took him to see Toy Story three. Um, so uh, yeah, that, that was the that's my first experience with with uh, Toy Story three and with the entire trilogy. You know, I I grew up on this stuff. I was uh, I was born in '82, so I was a a young teen, I think, when the first one was released. So I very much uh, I very much grew up with the first two. They were in my young teen years. So this one coming out in 2010, I would have been 28. So uh, very much from teenager to adult, a nice little range there to see all of these. Cool. Well, for me, um, it the 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 timing of Toy Story three in particular could not have been more emotionally effective because it came out the like a month after I graduated high school. Ah, perfect. Exactly. And so I was a wreck already because I was finishing high school, saying goodbye to some friends, getting ready to go off to college across the state, six hours away, uh, leaving my family behind for the first time in my life. And so on that level, watching Andy graduate and saying goodbye to his life and his toys, this this film hit me pretty hard, even from my first viewing. Um, I was three when the first one came out. I was seven, I think, when the second one came out. And uh, yeah, so I, I very much did grow up with Andy. I was a little bit younger than him for the first two, but right around the same age for Toy Story 3. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't see the first two in theaters. I, I grew up with those on VHS, but mm -hmm. I, I saw the third one with my friends in the movie theater. And so here we are. We were all freshly graduated from high school and ready to move on with our lives. And this film just goes along and comes along and destroys us. <laughs> <laughs> so um, today's viewing, I, I didn't watch it until earlier today. It was the first time I've probably watched this film in maybe four or five years, to be honest. And it's just because oh, yeah? I, I don't think I can handle watching this movie that often because it, it does affect me so uh, much on an emotional level. So uh, anyways, all that aside, let's let's talk about the story a little bit. So what what hooks you in the story? What do you like about it? Oh, man, I like the fluctuation of in the size of the cast was one thing that I really noticed this time. Uh, starting back in Andy's room as he's packing up for college, we have just this small handful of toys left and we get some real quick kind of a, a rundown of of where everyone is, you know, uh, a lot of them have been broken or given away. Um, there's a, there's a special sort of moment, but Woody saying that Bo Peep is gone. 
And we have, by my count, I think we have nine left uh, out of, uh, we can imagine in the, in the very first movie, we had a lot of toys there. But there's only nine left now, not including the little alien guys, although they become a pretty major necessity later in the story. Uh, but we're, and then we're potentially looking at an even greater redu- reduction as Andy picks on only Woody uh, to go with him to college. So these low numbers and the potential reduction kind of work to connect the audience, I think, with this transition, this time of going from one stage in life to another. Uh, and also what the toys are going through, them having to really be drug along in this transition as well. And we kind of get an idea for what they're all feeling. And then when the daycare comes along and the number of toys are doubled and even tripled, then it's like an explosion of of joy and happiness at first because uh, they aren't alone anymore. It's like, it's like they're they're getting a whole new lease in life. And so I think that ebb and flow right at the beginning of the movie there of just the size of the cast uh, is, is a really good starting off point, I think, for the story. Yeah, there was a delay of 11 years between Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3, so they were able to really draw up the nostalgia factor mm-hmm. and make some parallels between the movies. And one of them is that staff meeting at the very beginning of the film, mm-hmm. where in this one, Andy sa- or Woody says, everybody's staff meeting, and he waits and says, hey, hey, gather everybody together. They respond, we're all here. Right. As opposed to in the first movie, when he says staff meeting, and they, there's this room full of toys. Yeah. And so that 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 really is a dramatic difference. And the the first scene in Sunnyside is very much more along the lines of that initial staff meeting in the first Toy Story film and that, that number of toys. Right. And so it, it's calling back to a sort of era familiarity with those characters, uh, back to what they remember it used to be like when they were with a more youthful owner. That's right. They're getting, this is all brand new to them. And, and it's like they're receiving a second lease on life. Um, and I really like how Buzz is used in this story because, you know, in the first one, he's this new toy and he's got all these extra features and Woody's very jealous of him. Um, and in the second one, he he kind of comes to realize that he's not necessarily unique. Maybe he's not really anything special. You have the, the wall of Buzz Lightyear toys. And in this one, I think the movie does a good job of keeping him as still the best toy ever created. You have his between his demo mode and his Spanish mode. I think those are really cool elements to introduce, both as a means of moving the story along, of course, but also to spice things up a little bit and keep the audience kind of on their toys, seeing these new things with Buzz, who is supposed to be like this all-encompassing toy. He's got all the bells and whistles, and now he's got all these extra things. Uh, so Woody rescuing everyone on, on his own is intriguing enough, but now he has to avoid Buzz with all these new features while also saving him as well. So it's like, okay, how does this happen? So I like the inclusion of uh, of Buzz's extra features there as kind of a little kink in the story. Even at the end of the film, Andy refers to Buzz when passing him on to Bonnie as the coolest toy. Yeah. like that, that, That's what he says word for word. And then... Uh, I, I just got to say that the Spanish buzz is like a stroke of hysterical genius. I, that that <laughs> never fails to make me laugh. Uh, Spanish buzz really sort of steals the steals the scene every time he's oh, in. It does. It uh, does. And now other things, other callbacks to the originals that I was mentioning. You know, this film 
like the very first one opens on the blue sky with the white clouds and it closes on that too. So it, it's, it very much feels like the closing of this, this chapter of the story that the, of these characters that we've been following along with. And, um, that, that opening sequence, uh, the Western with the, the evil Dr. Porkchop and all, all that kind of uh, stuff, uh, that that's a throwback again to the very first toy story film. We open up the first toy story with Andy playing with boxes and we, we see him, moving them to the air. And so this is almost filmed as if we were inside his imagination. And I, I yeah. really like that approach. Yeah. What a great way to start the movie because I mean, you have to like you, for example, you're, you're a perfect example because you were seven when the second one comes out and that's when you add in Jesse and, um, Oh, bullseye. Uh, these, these two extra characters that really round out the whole, the whole cast. And, so you're seven at that time, and then you're 18 or 19 when this comes out. And I can imagine if you're anything like I was, you're thinking, boy, are they going to be able to recapture what I remember from my childhood? Exactly. And and they did. Like I couldn't have imagined any better way. They go right back to childhood, but not only to childhood, to the imaginative aspect of playing with these toys and actually putting us in, like you said, in the imagination of Andy with all these things happening. Um, so that's that's such a great way to start this off again and to really grab the audience back in and remind us all of why we love this get us on board and now continue with this new part of the story yeah i I wrote in my notes that this is sort of like childhood nostalgia the movie (laughs) because i can't imagine any other film that has or ever will make me sort of yearn for toddlerhood (laughs) right (laughs) because it's just such a fun moment in your life that doesn't last for very long but everything seems possible including these toys coming to life and enacting your stories and stuff like Uh that. And speaking to the characters that they, they all feel immediately like the characters that I grew up with. It, it doesn't feel disjarring that it's been 11 years since I've seen them on the screen. It's automatically familiar. And I think that's a really a, a testament to Pixar and to the voice cast and really sort of making it feel like home when you come to toy story three. Yeah, absolutely. And they worked in, too, you mentioned how it goes back to like literally a scene by scene shot of what he was doing in the first movie, but it also includes in what Jesse and Bullseye add to it. Um, so it, it adds in a couple things from the second movie that, that's, that still treat those as a complete package coming into this third one. Yeah, and it's also cool to see the the return of Buster the dog <laughs> showing the sort of passage oh. of time and the little cameo <laughs> from uh, Sid as the, the garbage truck boy. Yeah, you know, I told my wife that. I said, uh, I said, you know, a lot of people think that's Sid. And she's like, what do you mean? I didn't see his face. I said, he's wearing that skull shirt. And she says, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the light goes on. You realize some sort of cool connection. Like, And Pixar is famous for these, of course. Uh, some cool connection like this. And, yeah, that's learning that that was Sid. I, I learned that well after, probably a year or two after I saw it first time and, and I was like oh yeah that's right boy they're, they're just another level uh, deeper there that uh, that the whole movie has shown us this this entire time right and then to sort of close up my thoughts on the the story um, you know Toy Story and Pixar in general is, is no stranger to making people emotional right in the first Toy Story film we have the whole I will go sailing no more sequence where Buzz realizes I can't fly and Everything that Woody has said about me, everything that everybody has said about me is completely true. I'm a, I'm a fraud. And then in the second Toy Story, we have the when she loved me 
section where Jessie is revealing the story, her backstory about how she was abandoned and forgotten and left by herself. And so we've got those two sequences, but nothing compares in my mind to the last 15 or 20 minutes of this film. Uh, and I, I cannot escape the end of this film with a dry eye. I, I can't at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh that's an incredible scene. Um, it's hard to describe kind of what I was thinking when I first saw that. I mean, I'm mostly trying to not let my son see me cry as we're watching that, <laughs> that scene, but Boy, it just the way they reached out to one another and just kind of quietly accepted what it appeared was, was going to happen. And I completely bought it as well. I totally thought that we were going to witness the burning incineration of our favorite characters here. And, you know, I should have known better, of course, but this is how much <laughs> I was bought into this movie. I was on board the whole way. And. I had totally forgotten that the the aliens were not there anymore, and that they had gone to the claw, and 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 there was something possibly happening there in the background, and I was just completely just entrenched in what they were feeling there, because well, and I'll get to this a little more when we get into some themes, but these these are family, you know, these are as much family as as we can be with our brothers and sisters. This these are the types of relationships that. Woody and Buzz have together that 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 Woody and Buzz have with with Rex and with Slinky and with all these others and just to see them like reaching out to one another to help calm each other but also to just kind of nod and say okay it's over it was just so heartbreaking man I I could hardly take it there's that moment when Jesse turns to Buzz and says what are we gonna do and Buzz just looks at her, and that's what starts. Yeah. And he reaches out his hand, and that there's no more words spoken from any of yeah. them. It's it's just this is it, and we're together, and that's what matters. So yeah, it, it, it's hard. And then Andy's goodbyes and all, all of that. I, I just I can't do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let's go ahead and talk about the characters a little bit more in specific. So how about uh, let's start with just Woody? What do you, what do you have to say about Woody here? Oh geez, he's he's kind of the ideal best friend. You know, he's loyal. Um, he is always trying to please everyone. I think that's his desire when he when he gathers these meetings. You know that we see in each and every film. He's gathering these meetings together, and and it kind of just appears that he's just running the show. You know, but he's kind of notifying everyone of what's going on. He's making sure everyone knows where they need to be. He's making sure they know when Andy's birthday is. Uh, what the plan is moving forward. He's reassuring them that they're going to be in the attic and they're going to, they're going to gr- one day be able to uh, be played by uh, Andy's children, maybe. Um, so he's, he's like this fatherly figure over this whole group. And uh, as a cowboy, he already has this sort of traditionalist view of, of that kind of a mindset. And so being a cowboy having this authority over everyone and still caring for them uh, while kind of speaking sternly sometimes. He just possesses all these traits that you would just want to have in a, in a good friend. So I think he he's sort of the perfect, uh, perfect toy for Andy for this entire trip. At the end of the film, when Andy's handing Woody over to Bonnie, he, he goes over like those exact traits that you were just talking about. He says he's loyal. He's the best friend you could have all, all those kind mm-hmm. of things. Um, and you know, he's almost stubborn to a fault. Like he, he's loyal to Andy to a fault. And that, that's mm-hmm. sort of one of his aspects of growth for this film. 
you know, in each Toy Story, Woody has his own arc. In the first one, he's he's selfish, selfish and wants Andy to himself. And by the end, he 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 comes to the the sharing mindset. I, Buzz and I can have equal parts in Andy right now. Yeah, he expands his family exactly. And then the second one, he's scared of Andy growing up. He's he's scared of being forgotten. And so over the course of that film, he's ready to write it out. He's ready to enjoy the time with Andy that he has. Well, in Toy Story three, we've we've seen the results of that. He has wrote out Andy's childhood. It's at the end of it. And he is ready to sacrifice playtime to stay with Andy, right? He he knows that the odds of him getting played with, even the odds of him going to college initially are pretty low because he's a toy. He doesn't really have a place there. And over the course of this film and the the witnessing the reactions of his fellow toys and seeing what they're going through not being chosen to go to college, um, he, he comes to the realization that, you know, maybe his duty as a toy isn't to Andy, it's to children and to bringing children happiness. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I love that Woody has these clear growths from movie to movie. And we see this one big overarching growth from the very beginning. Yeah. What about Buzz? <laughs> he's the coolest toy ever, right? I mean, he's he's the toy you wish for uh, at every birthday. <laughs> <laughs> he's got all the bells and whistles. He He is, I don't know, he's just fun. I mean, he... The fact that he completely buys into uh, thinking he is a serious spaceman and he's out to fight the evil Emperor Zerg uh, is really cool in the first one, you know, because all of the toys that we that we enter into this world, they're all self-aware that they're toys. And so they're all just kind of playing their role in that aspect. Well, when Buzz comes fresh out of the box, he hasn't reached that point of self-awareness yet. He thinks he is who he looks like, right? He thinks he is Buzz Lightyear, the actual spaceman. And that's that's a really neat thing. Like, what if our toys all genuinely adapted the character traits that they uh, are created to be? You know, what if, what if your soldiers actually did do missions <laughs> like we have them doing in the first one and even in this third one, too? Uh, what if a cowboy actually thinks he's a cowboy and acts in, in the way that a cowboy would? And it's neat to see that with Buzz and, and kind of explore coming from that position to the point where he does realize that he's only a toy and he's one of many, uh, like you were saying, coming to that arc in, in the first one. So, yeah, Buzz is, Buzz is super cool. And, and contrasting him with Woody is, uh, is a really interesting move. And, and creating them as a friendship throughout this whole trilogy uh, is, is a super tight bond. He's sort of the utility toy in this film. Um, we see three different versions of him. We, we see the, the buzz that we've come to know and love over the course of the three films. Then we see like the super antagonist version of the uh, buzz we see at the very beginning in Toy Story or the, even the version we see in Toy Story 2 that they uh-huh. meet in Al's Toy Barn. And then we have, of course, Spanish buzz. And I, I, I love how each of the buzzes sort of serves their own purpose and has their own set of abilities i suppose um the the buzz that we know he he realizes hey i'm just a toy there's limitations to what i can do but i can take those limitations and use them as an asset uh the example being when he he escapes the caterpillar room through the transom and so you see him uh moving along the 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 clothespin string and you see him jumping on top of the broom and all that so he's utilizing his environment in a way that uh space buzz um, 
doesn't because he he genuinely thinks he's a space ranger so he he takes a more literal approach to trying it and one of my favorite moments with him is when they've trapped him in the the plastic bin upside down and he <laughs> lasers a hole or a circle and he tries to jump out and of course he yeah. didn't because it's plastic laser <laughs> that, that's one of my favorite moments with him and then witnessing the, a sort of a mix between the two with spanish buzz with the added latin uh comedy to it yeah um yeah as as he he thinks he's a real space ranger but he's also in love with jesse at the same time and so we, we see how he he approaches situations and he's uh, like i said just a little bit of a mix between the two of them and i i think that that's a great use of his character in this film yeah and I, you mentioned jesse i think buzz and jesse's semi-romance is super cute and it's so it perfectly age appropriate for the audience i mean most kids seeing this are like pre-K to maybe like third and fourth grade. That's like the sweet spot age range, I think. And if I think back on that age and interacting with girls that I liked, it was kind of a nervous and awkward time, a lot of tripping over my words and losing my thoughts and everything. And that's normal buzz in this as he interacts with Jesse. But Spanish mode buzz is on a whole other level. He's getting into steamy romance territory. <laughs> right. he's, he's twirling her around and, and serenading her and everything. Uh, but even then, it's it's mostly funny, so it remains appropriate for kids. And I, that that's one relationship that I think is really cool. Like we'll focus a lot on Woody and Buzz, or uh, we'll we'll look at some of the villains that that occur in each one of these. We'll look at the friendships elsewhere, but Buzz and Jesse are kind of just this side uh, relationship that doesn't get a whole lot of focus. But when it does, it's like this nervous, like I said, this nervous, awkward uh, interaction because they both kind of like each other, but they both don't really want to say it. And they're nervous to ask it, that kind of thing. And I just think their relationship is really cute. Right. And speaking of Jessie, um, it, it's really sad to see her sort of abandonment issues and fears mm -hmm. resurface in this film after resolving in Toy Story 2, right? She yeah, she was right. she was scared of being abandoned. She had been abandoned, but she found solace in Andy. And she spent all these happy years with Andy, and now it's happening again. And it, it really hurts after the whole when she loved me sequence in Toy Story 2, realizing that she's she's fearing the same thing happening again. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. But she comes to realize that Andy does still care about all of them. And so I, I, I like seeing that tension a little bit, but I, I also like that it doesn't become the focus again. It's just something that sort of teased at. We see that little twinge of fear and she hyperventilates once or twice in those, those beginning scenes. But mm -hmm. the rest of the film, it's just about her realizing what she's there for and trying to get back to that. And I, I think that's good. Yeah, that's good on the directors too. And all, all the, uh, the writers kind of relying on their audience too understand who this character is and and i would assume that they they take for granted that everyone has seen the first two movies if they're going to see this so we already have that background with jesse that we don't need it explained to us all over again and they do a good job of uh of just moving forward with it and just as a nod kind of to previous issues she's had um do you have anything to say about andy um i mean why has he got to get rid of all his toys <laughs> right <laughs> I mean, you're only going to college. What do you think everybody's going to make fun of you? Come on. Come on, Andy. Yeah, I, I think it's cool that Andy gets a little bit of an arc in this film. You know, in the first two films, he was just the instigator of everything, right? He was just in the background. He wasn't the focus really at all. Um, mm -hmm. he, he was maybe the eventual goal, but he wasn't part of the story. And in this one, 
we see him actually growing up from the montage at the beginning where we see him age forward a little bit to the decisions he has to make towards the end of the film. And there's, there's this moment in the final scene when Bonnie notices that Woody is in the box and she reaches for him and he pulls him back. It's like, Oh oh no, he, not my Woody, not my Woody. And uh, we see his attachment and, but we, we see that change when he realizes how much that, how much better the toys are with Bonnie. And so it's this moment of growing up and realizing that we, we'll talk about this more in theme. So I don't want to say it too much, but just growing up and moving on and maybe letting some things go when the time is right. Yeah. And he had to, uh, you know, unknowingly, of course he had to follow Woody's lead there because Woody had to put himself in that box. Right. Uh, to be shipped off along with all of his friends. And so he had to rely on Andy to let him go to be able to be there with all of them still. So yeah, very good moment there. Now, earlier today, you messaged me and said, can we talk a little bit about how Lotso is the best Pixar villain? (laughs) So let's hear about that a little bit. Well, I'm wondering if he is. So I think, you know, I haven't, I haven't really fleshed this out too much, but I think what makes a good villain is is a believable backstory to the degree that something drastic happens to them on a very personal level and they they adopt a worldview or a perspective from that experience and they expand it upon everyone that they encounter afterwards okay so childhood trauma uh, forces a perspective and then they turn into a monster because they've got this warped sense of how the world works. And I think, you know, if I'm just thinking about Pixar villains, there's not, I don't even know if we could say there's real villains in even half of the Pixar movies because one that I'm thinking of right off the bat is Syndrome in The Incredibles. Right. And he has, he has this, he has this kind of childhood trauma. And that forces a perspective on him, and he adapts that and makes terrible decisions afterwards. And we have that with Lotso, too. Now, we wouldn't say a childhood trauma. It's not like he's a child at any point. But previously in his life, he felt abandoned by his previous owner. Um, And it turns out we learn from another character that he was just lost, just misplaced. It was just... A moment of carelessness, not anything intentional, not saying anything about him as a toy or as a comforter or anything like that. Just a, just an accident. But because he interpreted it as being intentionally dismissed, that just snapped something in him. And I think even when the character is recounting the event, um, he, he, he literally says he snapped. Lotso snapped in that moment and he decides. Nobody owns him. Uh, nobody should own any toys because, as I'll talk about in a minute, no owners means no heartbreak. And so he takes that and he applies it to where he the the environment that he comes into, which is the daycare, and he he produces this system that the, all of Andy's toys come into, uh, which turns him basically into a villain. So I think that the the depth of his story and the personalized motivation that he has for doing what he's doing make him a good villain. And maybe because there's a lack of additional villains in the Pixar universe, um, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say he's at least one of the best, if not the best. What do you think? 
Yeah, I definitely see that. He He's sort of like an anti-Jesse in some ways. They both have abandonment issues. They were both left behind by their owners. But the, the sort of the final straw for Lotso was that he wasn't just left behind. He made the trek back mm-hmm. and found out that he had been replaced. Yeah. And that was the final straw. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so he he comes to the, the decision that if he couldn't have Daisy, this girl who had left him behind and replaced him, then nobody could. And so he hides the truth from Big Baby. He he tosses aside chuckles and he he goes on to Sunnyside and establishes dominance and enlists the system uh, that you were talking about. And it's really kind of tragic because there's there's even a moment at the end of the film when they're at the dump and the toys save Lotso from dying in the shredder. Yeah. And he still goes on to betray them. And I, I ask myself, wh- why? Why would he do that after literally having his life saved? And it's because... He doesn't want to be alone in his suffering, I think. He he has gone through some heartbreak, and he is going to make sure that he's not by himself in that heartbreak. That's why he takes Big Baby with him. That's why he takes Chuckles with him. And at the end, that's why he abandons the toys and says, where's your kid now? And uh, it's just really a heartbreaking moment because he had a chance at redemption and he didn't take it. Yeah, I mean, he was completely bought into this idea, like you said, that if if he can't have his Daisy, then no one can have their Daisy. And he knows that if he saves them in that moment, they're going to make it back to Andy, uh, and they're going to be happy, but he still won't have anyone. So he's he's forcing his own loneliness and his own uh, abandonment onto everyone else. So again, a personalized issue that he's expanding and applying to everyone he comes in contact with. Um, I mean, that would have been, I wonder if that would have been uh, uh, believable or would have been kind of a little bit of a trope there if he had have saved them and, and kind of seen the light, so to speak. Um, I mean, he's still alive at the end, which is more than we can say for Syndrome in The Incredibles. Right. So, I mean, there is something to that, but he's also stuck on the front grill of a semi for perhaps for the rest of eternity. Exactly. So uh, he doesn't exactly uh, he he. Well, I don't know. He maybe he kind of does get his way. He's he's still very lonely on the front of that semi. He does have a couple other toys there with him that seem <laughs> to be enjoying it, but uh, he's he's completely tied down to the place that he is. Um, and he's not necessarily getting his way, but he's certainly left lonesome. Right. Anchored on the front of that truck. He's not going anywhere. No chance he's getting left behind now. There you go. Good point. <laughs> um, any other character things you want to talk about? Or I, I do have to say that Mr. Tortilla Head is another <laughs> stroke of genius that they had. They're, they're, they're those two inspired moments. There's Mr. Tortilla Head and their Spanish buzz. And they make me laugh hysterically every time. I think I remember my initial, everybody's initial reaction when in the theater for Toy Story 3, when you realize what's about to happen. They they slide the tortilla under the door and we see his parts come out and sort of drag them <laughs> to where where they are. And it, it's hysterically funny every time. Yeah, it's so great that you mentioned it because I was just skimming over my notes and literally the potato head scene with tortilla was on my notes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the conversation in the writer's room of, <laughs> of coming up with this idea and floating it to people and being and being like, really? Are we going to do that? But yeah, it works so great. It's so, I mean, there's a lot of questions that pop up like, 
how can his eyeballs move <laughs> right. without a body attached, all that kind of stuff. But forget about that. It's hilarious. Come on. Yeah, I mean, I, I love all the returning characters, too. They're, they don't go maybe through the same arcs that everybody else does, but th- they feel like the same characters we've always known. As I said earlier, um, it's always nice to have John Ratzenberger in a sort of lead role in a Pixar film. He's always sort of yeah. put in the background because, you know, he's the one who's in every Pixar film. And so it, it's nice to have him in a more prominent voice role in the Toy Story films. And mm-hmm. um Estelle Harris as Mrs. Potato Head is hysterical. Um, the the clever usage of having her one eye left behind in Andy's room is a great, great <laughs> effect and great mechanic in this film where they can use it to sort of spy on what's happening in Andy's room. I think that's awesome. Right, right. And right. Um, Rex is just as adorable as ever, despite his efforts to yeah. be scary. And uh, like there's that moment at the start of the film when uh, they... they pull the ruse to try and get Andy to play with them. And they have the cell phone and the, the house phone in the toy chest. And when he's looking for his phone, Andy opens the box and picks up Rex. And after he puts him down and he's yeah. left, Rex says, he held me. He actually held me. And it's, it's, <laughs> it reveals how desperate their situation really is. And so I, I, it's nice seeing that character return and then bullseye, of course, and the aliens and uh, slinky. Everybody's just great. Yeah, I mean, the aliens have a nice little moment with uh, Potato Head there at the end. They kind of have their own little mini arc. Uh, right. I think Rex, though, Rex might be my favorite of this kind of second-tier group of, of toy buddies. Um, he's voiced by, I think he's Wallace Shawn, yes. I think, is who voices him. And of course, that's Vizini, Vizini in Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just imagining him in Princess Bride and that voice now attached to a Tyrannosaurus Rex that has like has trouble being a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Like he's not he's not scary at all. He doesn't have this monstrous roar or anything like that. Uh, in fact, he's he's a little bit of a of a joke about how passive he is. Uh, and then he's got you know the short arms, which which are an easy joke to make on T Rex. But I really like. Uh, I think Rex is my favorite of that of that second tier group. He's got that great moment in the the imagination sequence at the beginning where he actually has a legitimate roar, and I'm pretty sure it's just the T Rex roar from Jurassic Park. Yeah, and, he breaks uh, the, the shield, the slinky shield. Right, eats force field dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then at the end of the film, he finally has a, a another dinosaur partner to play video games with. How great is that? That's right. That's right. And there's that cool scene when they get to the daycare where he's become surrounded by these other dinosaur toys. He's just giddy with excitement that he now has friends. He's, the, he's been the only dinosaur for years, and now he's surrounded by him. He's he's definitely a great character, and I always love uh, I always love Wallace Shawn. Well, cool. Let's go ahead and talk about the music just a little bit. Like the characters and like the story and the environment, everything feels so familiar here because it is the return of Randy Newman, who wrote the score and songs for the first two films, and I, I love like the imagination and the the track like Cowboy, which is the very first musical cue um, where you hear snippets of stuff we've heard in the previous films and it's nice and big and adventurous and it really sort of brings out the imagination in that sequence. And um, then we go from that sequence into, of course, you've got a friend in me. Yeah. And that use of that song is so potent because it's set to the growing up montage where we see these home videos of Andy playing with his toys over the years and marking his height and their heights on the doorframe and it ends, it or it fades as uh, he sings, "Our friendship will never die," and it fades off after that. And then we're in the toy chest 
by themselves yep. with the friendship Where, having yep. essentially died. And it appears so it's dying. Exactly. And so that it's a clever use of music to sort of set up the situation at the beginning of the film. Yeah, I think the the biggest kind of moment for me, uh, I mean, you have all those nostalgic moments, but I think the biggest moment for me is probably the score during the incinerator scene. We talked about that a little bit already, mm-hmm. but it's enough to see, you know, your beloved toys facing their doom and, and having to accept it and everything. But the score was just pounding that doom into me, and it just heightened it so much. Uh, I, it really nailed that scene home, and, and I really loved it. Yeah, it's a track called The Claw, if you download the soundtrack, and uh, it really sort of drives home the inevitability of what's about to happen to them. Yeah, that, that's one of the two most emotional like score moments for me. Um, but the the biggest one for me is the track So Long, which is what's playing as Andy is passing on his toys and playing with his toys and then eventually saying goodbye. And yeah. I mean... <laughs> that that song will forever break my heart like every time i hear it every time i see it in the context of the film it's just a perfect melody randy newman does sentimental so well and that's not (laughs) a knock against him at all it's used perfectly in this film and uh especially in that moment yeah i mean just think back on a lot of those movies you were listing before that that are credited to him i mean you have a lot of sentimental moments in each one of those films as well and like you said, he he nails them. He gets the tones exactly spot on. It just pulls all the emotions that you have for these characters and for what's happening in the scene. Just pulls it straight out of you, and and it's really great. And though it's not as classic as "You've Got a Friend in Me," uh, "We Belong Together" might be my favorite Randy Newman Pixar song. Oh yeah, it did win the uh, Academy Award. Um, for best original song. And I, I love that song. I think it's a lot of fun. It, it's the message of the film essentially. And um, then to cap off the credits, we get the Spanish, you got a friend in me. And that, that's just like <laughs> the icing on the cake for Spanish buzz. Um, any other musical moments to sort of point out? I, I, that covers most of mine. Yeah, that covers mine too. I, I didn't have any, any more of note. Well, cool. Let's talk themes and relevance. So what do you got? So one thing, I think there's one scene, kind of a transitionary scene that explains a lot of, of the themes in this, um, at least uh, especially from lots of his perspective. So uh, there's a moment soon after Andy's toys get to Sunnyside that Lotso is kind of showing them how things work. He's walking them around and he's revealing some of his own philosophy in that he's really telling them. Uh, from a theme perspective. So first he's, he's showing them pictures of all the young kids that have, that have passed through Sunnyside, right? And he says, uh, he says this line, no owners means no heartbreak. And this is our first clue into Lotto's mindset. And now being given away can be spun into a positive thing. So all these toys are coming to him and they're all like kind of curious what's going to happen. And he's trying to make it look as best as he possibly can. Um, if this had been said, though, to them, think about something like that being said to these toys 10 or 12 years prior to that. Uh, I don't think they're falling for it. I think they're calling his, his crap to the hair and they're taking off. You know, they're like, no way. Andy's our owner. We love him and he plays with us all the time. But now they've just been thrown to the curb. They think they've been thrown away by their owner. So Lotso's anti-owner message is kind of tickling their ears and feeding into the feelings of betrayal and abandonment that they're already experiencing. So if we kind of take that out and, and apply that to 
sort of the real world. What does that mean? Owners and heartbreak. What does that, how does that apply to us? And I think the simplest uh, form, the simplest parallel to that is just relationships, people that we choose to love. So when we allow ourselves to love other people, and especially those who maybe we would marry one day, we're giving them a degree of ownership over us because they have our heart, so to speak. And if someone has our heart, then there exists the potential for our hearts to be broken. So you look back at Lotso, and we've talked about this already. He's surrounded himself with this network of toys uh, all around Sunnyside, but he's not attached to any of them. Uh, they do all of his bidding. They're they're his servants, essentially. Even Big Baby, who he was abandoned with, he treats him like an object. So he's living out this mantra that no owners means no heartbreak, and he's kind of determined to never have his heart broken ever again. And that's contrasted then with Andy's toys because they've given themselves over to Andy, and they've, they've, they're kind of in the midst of heartbreak because they have to deal with this uh, notion that they've been given away. They've been thrown to the curb. They've been thrown away. Uh, they've given themselves over to Andy and to each other, really. I mean, so they're, they're giving themselves, giving of themselves to each other and to Andy, and they've experienced heartbreak on one of those regards. And Lotso is here telling them, if you have no owner, you never have to have your heart broken. Uh, it's just, it's just constant pleasure all the time from being played with all the time by these new kids, uh, year in and year out. So this is, I think this is a theme um, that we can identify there of the idea of not attaching yourself to anyone in any meaningful way so that you can avoid having any kind of a heartbreak. And I think Lotso is the perfect uh, example of that. Yeah, I think that's an insightful way of looking at that situation because Lotso isn't necessarily the character that we want to walk away with lessons from. The the Well, the lesson we want to walk away from Lotso with is sort of the the anti what he experiences uh mm-hmm. he he's definitely a character that we don't want to follow his path we want to follow a different path or maybe the opposite of his path and so we definitely do want to open ourselves up to people and dedicate ourselves to people and make ourselves vulnerable and yes sometimes it hurts but ultimately the reward is greater and so i i really like that um another thing that i had written down was the idea of sticking sticking together and facing life and its challenges with those you love. And that ties right in. Woody, as I said earlier, realizes that maybe it's not always about serving a particular owner or being there for Andy specifically. They had their time. They had a great time. But as a toy, his job is more to make children happy yeah and sticking with those that he has gone through this with. And so he, he, he comes to, believe that his primary dedication is to the other toys and then together they can service somebody else in this case bonnie and uh i I think that's a great contrast between what those characters experience and then another one i'd written down was the idea of growing up and sort of the passage of time the the inevitability of time um because woody taught Andy that sometimes moving on is, you know, what's best, making children happy, letting go of the past in order to better embrace the future, maybe, Uh but not forgetting what you've gone through, not forgetting the past, not completely letting it go, just putting it behind you. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. And always looking back fondly because those, those things did happen. 
you did go through that and ultimately led you to where you are today. And the toys definitely, I think, come to that realization by the end of the film. Yeah, he's the he's diametrically opposite of what Lotso is doing with his past. Right, Lotso's Lotso's forgetting about it. He wants nothing to do with it, and because of it was such a bad experience, he had that has shaded everything that he's doing. Uh, but with Woody, he's learning from it. He's not forgetting about it. He's not throwing it away. He's not saying it's meaningless. He's learning from it. And he's growing from it. So I think that, uh, yeah, what they're there, what you identified is a lesson for us that we, everything that we go through, you know, we'll come to a point eventually where we're going to look back at certain seasons in our life, uh, certain times where we were going through changes, transitions, just like is happening here in this film. Uh, and we can either find the bad experiences in those transitions and say, boy, that really sucked. I'm going to forget all about this. I'm not going to I'm not going to take anything from this. I'm going to forget it ever happened and I'm going to move on. Or we can do as Woody did. We're going to say, "Okay, there maybe there were some bad moments, but because I went through those, I'm now at this place." Or because I went through those, I learned this about myself or about someone else. And you can take those and not not move on necessarily in in the sense that you are forgetting about it or throwing it away, but move forward with that. So you're moving forward with that knowledge or with that growth that you've gone through uh, and, and, and just going from there, just as Woody did. Man, Pixar is so good <laughs> uh, to, to make us, you know, like these are kids movies technically, but to, for us to be able to sit down and have a conversation like this about the content of this movie, it just shows the depth at which they're operating because that there's so much to this movie and there's so much to walk away from it with. And, you know, if Lotso had just taken that same lesson that Woody had learned, he, he would have looked back at his time with Daisy with fondness. He, he would have looked back and realized, man, I had a great run with her. What a, what a great start to my, my time spent with children. And mm-hmm. then he would have ultimately stuck with big baby and chuckles and they, because they were in it together, they were all left behind. And then they could have gone on and made somebody else happy rather than trying to make everybody else miserable. And it's just, wow, these, these (laughs) things that we are able to take away and teach our children through these, these kid friendly movies, um, kudos to Pixar for sure. Yeah. I, I'm convinced that a primary goal of all Pixar films is to make every parent in the audience cry by the end of the film. (laughs) Well, they definitely succeeded. If they're going to do that, they have to have some deep connections with the characters and they have to include some things that are that just hit at some life lessons that the parents already know about. You know, the parents have already experienced a lot of these things that that the movie is touching on, and so they're rekindling a lot of those memories, which which oftentimes, as is the case with this, uh, just brings on the waterworks. Right. Well. Well. Any other themes or anything you want to talk about? There, there's another theme uh, that I that I picked up on something that Lotso said. It's actually in the same uh, scene that I had mentioned earlier. Uh, again, when he's walking along with them, taking them to their room, I think to the uh, like the three and four year old room. As they're walking through the bathroom, he says, "We don't need owners. We need we own ourselves. We're masters of our own fate, rulers of our own destiny." Now, if that's not a worldview perspective, I don't know what is. Oh, for sure. So we we have Lotso saying that, and it's shaded. We don't know any of his background yet, 
But at once we learn his background and then we look back on these things that he said, we know why he's saying them and we can identify what's wrong with them, where he is in error. And we see a guy here just trying to own everything uh, on his own, own each and every decision and blaze his own trail when he's a toy. Whenever anyone else is around, he has to go completely motionless. He has no uh, he has no uh, will over what happens to him in those moments. So l- quite literally, he cannot blaze his own trail except in these moments when human beings aren't around. And I right. think that says a lot that he would hold to such a position so staunchly when his entire livelihood is screaming to him that that's wrong. So that that's another you can we can crack that open. You get in, get into theology and philosophy and all kinds of stuff from that from just that one statement. Yeah, we definitely could. Um, anything else? Uh, not theme wise. Okay. How about, do you have any final thoughts? Oh man, just, uh, I'll say it again for like the third or fourth time. That incinerator scene is one of the most memorable moments ever in the theater for me. I mean, I remember feeling frozen in my seat at that moment. And I actually thought that they might die and and it just paralyzed me. And, I mean, I think I was 28 years old at the time. I think I can very safely say that this is the first animated movie that I ever cried at. I'm almost positive that that's the case. Wow. And so so that is something that helps shape it to be one of my favorite animated movies of all time. It is my favorite Pixar, maybe hands down favorite animated overall. Um, but to have that kind of an effect on grown men – uh, I think is is an amazing thing to accomplish, and it's not just some uh, meaningless thing that that they just connected with with you know just me personally. This is this is a widespread effect that it's having on people, and uh, for that reason, I think it's 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 so meaningful, and and it's it's such a great moment to an already great film. I agree. It like I said earlier, it's a movie that's it's hard for me to watch often. Because it does make me so emotional every time I watch it. It just makes me a mess. Um, but because of that, you know, I don't think there's any other film that I have this sort of emotional connection to. Um, there are definitely movies that make me cry every time. But this one is just like a guaranteed sob fest for the last 20 minutes of the film. And so um, I, I think it's probably my favorite. It's not the most fun one for me for that reason. But it, it's, yeah. it's a great movie. And it. It, it definitely has a special place in my heart in relation to my personal life and uh, just growing up and th- when it released in relation to me growing up. And uh, I mean, it's just top notch on all levels. There's, the animation is fantastic. The Blu-ray looks great. Mm-hmm. The music's good. The characters are great. The the voice acting returning and new is all fantastic. It's, it's just an all around great Pixar movie. This is what animated movies should always strive to be. Yep. Well, cool. Anything else? That's all I've got. That is the end of the official 26th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much, Gene, for joining me. Thank you for having me, Chad. A reminder to everybody out there, contact. You can find the show on facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please continue. Go to iTunes, rate, review, subscribe. And if you have any feedback or ideas, contact me at the Cinescope podcast at gmail.com. And you can contact me there or anywhere else uh, to mention ideas about co-hosting. If you have a movie that you like that you won't feel like you could talk about for a little bit, 
uh, then definitely let me know and we'll try and fit you into the schedule somewhere. Gene, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Wizard of Gauze. That's Wizard with no A. Uh, <laughs> you can find me also on the Real World Theology Facebook group. I'm pretty active in there. We have a lot of good discussions, fun times with each other in there. Uh, and also on clearlens.org. I've got a few articles up that are a few years old by now, but uh, a lot of, I'm on every podcast there. So, uh, listen to me there and, uh, contact me through Twitter or Facebook. Awesome. Definitely go check out Real World Theology and see if you can find Gene elsewhere because he's a cool guy. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking with you more about movies in the future, maybe having you back on Cinescope again someday. Yeah, for sure. The best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, and Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And uh, all the show notes, all the contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thanks again, Gene. It's been awesome having you on the show. Thank you, Chad. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 26. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 27. Have fun and celebrate movies. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Gene Gozware. <laughs> Hold on, I'm going to start this over because I completely forgot to ask how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> uh, that's okay. That, you know, that's a running joke with uh, Real World Theology. Every right, time right. Mikey <laughs> mentions me or has me on, he always totally butchers it on purpose <laughs> but it's uh it's gosware so gosware it's like yeah it's like g-o-z-w-e-r-e gosware okay. gosware okay i'm gonna start yeah. this over and get it right this time okay <laughs>